Welcome to HSDF the Podcast, a collection of timely and informative policy discussions brought to you by the Homeland Security and Defense Forum. In this episode, Dr. Reggie Brothers leads a discussion on how the Department of Homeland Security uses artificial intelligence to support its mission. Joining the discussion is Daniel Cotter at DHS's Science and Technology Directorate, Yemi Oshinei, Deputy CIO at U.S. Citizenship and Immigration Services, and Brian Buzzle of Red Hat. This program was originally broadcast on October 26, 2021. So good afternoon, and thanks for joining us in this panel session on the applications of AIML to support DHS. Now, obviously, this is a huge topic, right? And to provide some guidance, we want to think about how DHS can apply these technologies in the context of smart, secure, and resilient communities. So, for example, infrastructure resiliency and preparedness and response. So, in that context, Let's get started with a fundamental question. So while we know AIML is a tool set of capabilities, what are the problems that you would like to use it to solve? And as you're answering that question, with each one of you, I'd like you to talk a little bit about your what your organization does. So Dan, I'm going to start with you in DHS SMT. Yes, thank you, Reggie. So I'm at DHS Science and Technology. We have a role in really trying to help formulate how the adoption of new technologies rolls into the DHS mission space. And when you look at the DHS mission space, probably around Homeland Security, that includes the work we do with our state, local, tribal, territorial, other partners, including infrastructure. So it's a very, very broad and complex mission. We're very interested, uh, but also concerned about AI. You know, obviously we think it can bring a lot of efficiency and more effectiveness in many of our missions. Thinking about cyber, physical risk, the critical infrastructure, securing borders, facilitating lawful trade and travel. But also, as Reggie mentioned up front, you know, the, the cost of uh, human and man-made disasters. How do we do response, you know, local, state, federal, integrated response? At the same time, we view AI as something that's accelerating threats, can accelerate conflict, can accelerate competition. So something we also need to be worried about, not just about its beneficial use. So within that structure, we have developed AI strategy. If you go online, you can find uh, both the Department of Homeland Security's AI strategy, as well as the s and strategy specifically targeted at um, how we're going to handle AI. And I'll talk more about that perhaps as the, uh, as the panel progresses. Thanks, Reggie. Great. Thanks, Dan. Yemi, over to you. Thanks, Reggie. In DHS and more specifically in immigration, you know, we're the arm of, of, of the federal government that provides immigration benefits. And so the immigration benefits to millions and millions of folks. A lot of what we do is first identify who we're giving the benefits to. We have to discern who you're related to, where you've been, what benefits you require or need. And then it's really going through a workflow and disseminating those benefits. And doing that, identity is a huge issue for us to make sure we're giving the benefits to the right person and someone doesn't take the benefits that doesn't belong to them. So where AI can help us is really finding those patterns and how we identify who is really who they are and really trying to prevent people from being someone else. Because in the digital world, we know there's a lot of opportunity to uh, spoof and you've heard of deep fakes and things of that nature. So that's where we have that wall of protection that AIML can support us on. The other thing is really facilitating how fast we can get a benefit and how efficient we can go through the workflow. So there are things like that, that we look at like computer vision. We use uh, natural language processing. How can we define, you know, what documents are what kind of, are, are pertaining to a certain kind of person. And really, if you look at those documents and, you know, way in the future, how can we get abstract information from those official documents to really get an official identity? So in our space, it's, it's really about getting information, 
having the right information, applying it the right way through a lot, a lot, a lot of data. So thank you, Jeremy. Appreciate that. Uh, Brian, uh, over to you. No, absolutely. Yeah. And very similar kind of focus around uh, DHS and the others. So I lead up a uh, organization at Red Hat that focuses on law enforcement as well as uh, associated agencies. And we see the emergence of AIML really as, as a platform solution surrounding around data. So whether it's working with biometrics, whether it's working with port solutions, whether it's working with FEMA on data collection and enablement, that whole investment around how do you properly take data, train models, move it out of a scientific pursuit and actually moving it to a production resource. We've worked with a lot of Homeland Security agencies in order to make that possible. As you start to bring those data solutions forward and make them more field focused, the concentrations around security and how do you kind of put that into a standard DevSecOps pipeline and making that pipeline actions available is an area that we certainly as Red Hat is investing uh, as well as other industry partners. So creating that, you know, that proper ecosystem where we can start to push these proper data products and ML solutions out. So folks like Yemi can take advantage of that at, uh, with the United States uh, Immigration Services, as well as FEMA from an operation for fire and flood are areas that we're certainly concentrating on. And certainly happy to talk a little bit further about smart city solutions, as well as other use cases that we're actively involved with the DHS. So appreciate being part of the panel. Yeah, th- thank you. Thank you. Um, one of the things, let's get down to some specific use cases, because you mentioned that, Brian, right? You, you just said, you know, in smart cities. Dan or Yemi, can you talk to uh, just specific cases where you are trying to use it right now? And maybe, Dan, if you start talking more from a headquarters perspective, and Yemi from an operational perspective. Well, again, uh, we're a research organization, so we're not really involved right now in driving operational mission. Mm-hmm. Our role really in this space is to try to understand the requirements from the components of DHS and then look at how the AI is evolving. So working with the National Science Foundations, other research organizations. Um, some of the you know initial use cases, though, clearly, you know, cyber's use case around AI, so we're investing in. But as we look at use cases around smart, secure, resilient communities, as Brian was mentioning, you know, there, there's an awful lot there. One of the problems we're really looking at is just the, the volumes of data. Right now, Spending on IoT, Internet of Things, is over uh, $1.4 trillion. Uh, projections are by the end of this decade, 2030, there'll be 500 billion interconnected devices out there, device costs dropping down to a buck or so. So how do you avoid the information paralysis that comes with that when everything out there you know, can be instrumented? Uh, some of the work we're doing right now around low-cost flood sensors, low-cost violence sensors, we're looking at how we pull, put more if you will, decision uh, rights, decision authority into that device. You know, some use cases are pretty simple, and it's for uh, machine learning and just a simple rule set, say for a, um, a flood sensor that, that knows when to close a floodgate, perhaps knows when to close a low water crossing so don't, people don't drive it and drown. But at what point do you want a lot more authority devices like that, particularly as they mesh together and interconnect and inform larger and larger problems across the community? So a lot to think about here. I'd say we're really just at the infancy of really understanding what the true requirements are and the ability of AI ML to match. And, and just a, a side comment, I mean, Brian mentioned this, one of the things that I think we're all struggling with a bit are where, where are the real data sets out there that you can train and test these things on? Um, how do we make sure that those data sets don't have biases in them and that over time, perhaps they become something that uh, isn't making the right decisions that we want? And finally, to do these things and still make sure we're adhering to all the privacy, 
civil rights, civil liberties types of constraints that we need to conform to to assure um, sure people's rights. Thank you. Thanks, thanks, Dan. So I want to go back to you in a little bit about kind of research directions, but before I do that, I mean, could you talk to you know Dan just brought up the issue of data, right? And I know you've talked about identity issues and, and, and trying to figure that out and, and, and energy resolution, these kinds of things. Could you talk about what, what you're doing specifically in some of your programs and, and how you're trying to come up to speed and use these kind of capabilities? Yeah, definitely, Reggie. And, and I do want to frame it in the backdrop of what Dan just talked about. One of the things, you know, you, you started out about smart cities, you know, the core of what folks like to talk about in smart cities is the credential. Who am I and how do I have access to a lot of different things in a smart city? Well, you know, shed the light back onto immigration. And there's a population of folks that come here in different parts of their journey. So some folks come in and say, I need a benefit. Some folks come in and say, you know, I'm in great danger. Some folks come in and, and, and unfortunately, we're trying to take them out of the country because they don't belong here. So each point we interact with that individual, but each point that individual has a different sentiment and wants to give you an identity. Sometimes they're motivated to give you an identity that makes sense. So, you know, I talk about the declared information that we get as data. You know, if I'm here for a benefit, I'm going to give you every piece of information that I need to give you so that I can declare my identity, you can track me and I can get my benefit. But if perhaps that we're in a position that there's someone antagonistic and you shouldn't be here, you're not motivated to give a lot of identity. And oh, by the way, sometimes that same individual accesses us in multiple phases of that journey and they're the same person. So how do we ensure that that person is who they say they are? A lot of that comes with some of the models being trained to say, you know, how are certain names consistent from certain cultural backgrounds? If someone changed an ad- addresses multiple times, is there a pattern? Are there patterns of locations and geographically where folks are? But a lot of times when we're in the operational mode, we don't have the opportunity to train that model well. And that's where bias gets introduced because we're reacting to Dan's point. I think we need test beds to be able to say, you know, here's a certain population. Here's a certain scenario. How do we train it? How do we make that data available to different components operating different missions, but they're all related? So what happens is it's not just the data, but it's the data use and the perspective of the data at the time that you're engaging with someone or at the time that you're executing a mission. And I think one of the things we can press forward on that would help us in the operating world is really trying to figure out how we, we, we really train those models well before we put them in operation. Because what happens is once they get in operation, you know, we're dealing with auto ML and, and we're dealing with, with AI that actually is going to be functioning. It will start to create a bias or it'll start to create its own trajectory. I mean, that's really what it's there for. But, you know, we want to be able to, to, to predict at least to, to, to a great deal where what it's going to do. So we're um, applying the mission properly. Let me follow up on that. I, I, I appreciate your answer. Can you can you explain like how you how, how you start to engage with AI, right? Like so, so you go from pilot to enterprise. How how does that whole flow actually work? So it happens a lot of different ways. You can engage with a vendor, and you can have ML on a platform where we know, for instance, for example, we get most of the time declared data for a person. Well, our goal there is just to make sure that we're covering all the different permutations, we're covering all the different scenarios where data is, and we train a model based on what we've done in the past. And so you'll have a, I'll put air quotes here, a research phase, but because we're operators, you know, that's really not defined as pure research. It's us doing development, testing, you know, to the best of our ability to get a product out, out in the ground. And oh, by the way, you know, we don't really get to test that vendor's product against a ton of other products because we're usually going through an acquisition phase and, and we've acquired it through, through you know, competitive acquisition. 
We haven't done the full landscape of testing, but we've done enough to make sure it's a solid product. One of the things that, I, that I've mentioned before is if we leverage a real research arm, how could we really say, I'm going to take five different types of models and five different types of environments and really test that thing thoroughly, you know, show all the warts, show the things that it can do over longer periods of time. Then we can say, well, I know what to expect. So, you know, our engagement through the vendors, typically what will happen, other engagements can be through another agency where we've seen it in production. And we say, well, we like how that works. We'd like to leverage that in our area. And now, honestly, there's model as a service, right? There, there are models that you can actually purchase, acquire, some that really sit on platforms that you can say, it says it does this, so we'll use it that way. Those are some kind of ways we, we engage. So I appreciate that. So, so something to think about, so I want to go to Brian from his experience in terms of actually operationalizing these kinds of tools. You know, I want to come back and talk about culture, right? Because there was an interesting article in Harvard Business Review a couple of years ago. It's one of the biggest challenges to actually scale on the AI is the impacts on culture. So I want to come back to you on that, okay? Brian, can you, can you tell me from your perspective, um, what are some of the challenges you see in actually operationalized AI at scale? No, I think, and this gets back to Yemi's point of moving things from a silo, making sure that you have the right subject matter expertise as far as what you think the, the field resources would be, and providing a feedback loop on that data. So these data, the models aren't trained in a vacuum, right? And to his point, there are additional model solutions that you can certainly has as, have as a service. But part of that, again, gets back to the dynamic and scalable nature of how those things are going to operate in the field, right? So, you know, certainly there is a lot of investment now for edge and, and advanced computing that gets that those solutions closer. Uh, Dan mentioned, you know, advancements in IoT and other edge-capable devices that you know, provide a little bit more dynamic nature when it comes to small computing behavior. But a lot of this is, again, pushing data and trainable data out to field and for edge to take advantage of so you can start doing more dynamic and scalable things. I think we're at the infancy of that. A lot of it is more federated in data center operations, right, with very specialized models usually fueled by an innovation project that are you know, focusing on a specific area. But I think as things start to advance and now that we have these more edge-capable devices, I think a lot of the ethics issues that we're talking about when it comes to policy of when and when not to use this, when and when not are we detecting an object or you know, a biometric challenge that doesn't involve a person, which may be a little bit less complex and a little bit more straightforward. We still need we need to really strongly concentrate on what are the, some of the ethical concerns that everyone's highlighting as you start to detect, you know, should this person be here? What is their intent? And what are additional challenge restrictions we want to have around that to be more effective? And so effectively kind of looking at the mission outcome of what we're trying to do and kind of going back from that is certainly where I think we're starting to see a lot of ask from industry. And we're trying to support it with the products and investments to make sure that you have that life cycle of training and having a feedback loop for production, that you'll have a capable model that you can start to bridge that gap back to what was considered to be siloed activities uh, to start with, if that makes sense. It does. It does. And probably think Dan mentioned as I mentioned earlier about uh, uh, adversarial concerns about AI, right? How it can be used against you. Can you talk to that as you think forward, it, the way smart cities are being envisioned, the proliferation of IoT, as Dan mentioned from the statistics, what are some of your concerns going forward with some of the, the, uh, the, the, the more nefarious uses of AI? No, absolutely. I think part of it, like any solution where you're trying to make things more effective and you're making them more distributed, obviously create more you know, opportunities for folks to take advantage of those, right, from the distributed nature. And so, and I think as part of, you know, Homeland's mission when it comes to public safety and, and obviously 
the integrity of the systems we're talking about for, for the U.S., those become entry points for other non-state actors and other folks to be able to take advantage of those. So what we're seeing is certainly additional security constraints, additional standard processes, whether it's DevSecOps pipelines for developing applications and data, and really pushing that forward so things are not as exploitable. And as you start to develop those solutions and the associated data, that you have those effective gateways in place in order to make sure that folks will not take advantage of. And as part of it, the recent investments in cyber that uh, is coming down from, from presidential executive orders, I think those are making those things more apparent that we need to focus on them, uh, as well as additional policy constraints and getting the right people to, to focus on those areas. Because again, it's not just a technology problem. It's how you staff, how you set those solutions up. Elements of zero trust and authentication become part of that, that ecosystem to protect that data and the associated models. Appreciate that, Brian. Yeah, you know, I mentioned earlier research corrections, right? So, so you're the central research organization of DHS. And I realize you're waiting for requirements from components, but where do you see, in the context of smart cities, and that's the passion of yours, where do you see some of the fundamental research topics going forward? Yeah, thanks, Reggie. And, and I would like just to echo one thing Brian said, you know, this whole issue about the quality of the AI, the test beds. If we're going to really move into AI, not just the workforce, but the public we're supporting has to have high competence you know, that the decisions being made, the autonomy, you know, that's perhaps ran into devices at the edge for decision-making. We need to make sure that the public has very, very high confidence that, that uh, you know, these things are operating correctly. And the, the core data sets Yemi also talked to to do the testing on is critical to that. We also have to have ways to surveil for bias and drift in these data sets over time. And getting back to your concern about uh, threat vectors, you know, certainly if we empower and create a lot of autonomy out there on devices and somebody's able to get in there, that'll be just perhaps devastating to, uh, you know, to us. So one of the areas that I think is really interesting to think about is incident management, uh, incident dispatch. So what if through AI, we were able to dispatch first responders just a few minutes sooner, you know, reduce the average dispatch times for the nation, you know, by two or three minutes, because through AI, when a call is coming into the dispatch center, the information is more automatically collected. Uh, the dispatch request is going out to whoever the responding service faster. And perhaps using AI, uh, you know, perhaps using drones, other types of surveillance capabilities. By the time the first responders are on scene, the AI-capable devices have already compiled a whole bunch of information for them. Are there people in the building that need to be saved? You know, and the building's providing information to the firefighters as they show up. If we've got an active shooter environment, can we provide additional information both to keep people safe and support the first responders coming in. You can imagine when you think forward of about, you know, the 500 billion interconnected devices that are going to be out there, you know, with some autonomy and intelligence at the edge with availability to connect through public safety. What can that do? How do we get the right information to the right person at the right time who's authorized to have it? And authorization is always a big deal in, in these, um, in these settings and creating, um, autonomous policy driven decision making. We can get what information One's an absolutely critical part of this. But how many lives can we save? How much can we reduce the impact of an incident, whether it's a natural disaster or some type of man-made event? I think that's really great to think about. You know, just with conventional product technologies, we've made a lot of progress. You know, with AI in there, you know, with this software, the data sets driving it, I think there's phenomenal opportunities. Particularly in uh, city urban areas, if you think forward, where 6G becomes practical and reliable, you know, the vital information will be able to move in real time. It would just just is going to be amazing. Sure, yeah. 
So listen to some of this. You mentioned test beds. Dan's talking about kind of going uh, in a future uh, application of this. One of my concerns, and, and I want to ask you about, how, what about the adoption of this? So you, know, you can do these things at pilot level. But what are the challenges to actually adopting these kind of practices and the workflows that you mentioned for the larger, for the larger enterprise? And is culture part of that? But like I said, either way, what, what, do you, what do you see as some of the major problems in adoption at enterprise scale? Uh, I think Dan hit on one. Is it's, it's really confidence in what ML will do for you, what AI will do for you. As you allow things to happen in an automated fashion where a person isn't, isn't managing it anymore, you know, there's just that trust factor. So there, there has to be ways of showing trust to the current operator that, yeah, you can do other things and allow this to do this in an automated fashion. Also, just having some ways to QA, because again, as, as ML grows and it learns, it's actually learning on its own, taking data input. And then one of the big things is making sure there's data. So folks have to be comfortable with the data going in to know that the response and actions mean a ton. Uh, we're talking about uh, smart cities. Real simple, probably a silly example, is if in one state, you know, a lot means a parking lot, and another state, a lot is a parcel of land, like real estate or a house or something. If you call emergency, you know, response and, and they're going to a lot, which lot are you going to? And, and it may seem like a very simplistic scenario, but what happens if you build and grow on that and you're going towards a lot and you get to the wrong place? Those two minutes you tried to save could be an extra 30 minutes in confusion. Same thing in, in, in the immigration. You know, there are names that are, that are, that are five names long. There are five actual words for your name. And sometimes that's all your first name and there is no third name. So how do we continue to learn and know that, you know, this culture that is really 10 miles from another culture is, is different? And, and how do we continuously grow? And what happens if something changes? Countries aren't always the same. Countries evolve. So being able to adjust and pivot with things that change and have folks be confident in the fact that ML will adjust with it. Because, you know, if there isn't confidence or, or quite frankly, if, if the confidence is low appropriately, then we have challenges in, in what we're executing. I have challenges in really executing the mission properly. And, you know, just unpacking it there is really about confidence and really about making sure that ML does the right thing for us. How do you think? How do you think industry can support you, Emmy, in terms of uh, getting that kind of confidence? Or can what, what do you think the next steps are? I will say, challenge to the industry for me are a couple things. Brian, you talked about you know making sure we're testing so that things aren't siloed. I would throw something out to industry. I think there should be a way for organizations that are different to interact. I know that's you know maybe a slightly pushing against laissez-faire here, but I, I think that it it should be appropriate for different types of technology in different companies for you to do some kind of litmus test. Because when you come to me and you say, I have AutoML in my platform and someone else has AutoML on their platform, or maybe I'm not using AutoML, it'd be great for the user or the customer to know what are those differences and how can I engage you? You know, keep it on a fair playing field, but, you know, a better understanding of how I approach certain technologies that may be slightly different and how I apply it. Also, really having the uh, industry understand different use cases and data. All data isn't the same. All immigration missions aren't the same. All DHS missions aren't the same. So having it more honed in because, you know, this is an evolving, complex technology. It'd be great if the mission side of it was well understood so that we can get through the maneuvers and the variations of how we use the technology. So I think if all that's done up front, it gives us a large platform to collaborate on, and then we'll get the best use status. So I think there's just so much more that we can do up front from an industry perspective before we engage. Because once we're engaging, 
we're asking really poignant questions. We're trying to get some answers and we're trying to move pretty quick. It'd be good if we had a lot more prep prep before we engage. So Brian, how do you start that? No, I think I think Yemi highlights something that we certainly think is industry is important is having flexibility and op- openness and understanding and verifiability when it comes to model and model development, right? As you go to train the solutions, we talked a little bit about some of the ethics concerns and understanding of how those models are built. The more proprietary, the more closed loop, the less open solutions that have the ability to kind of adapt. Because certainly some of the biometric challenges we talked about, some of the other fleet management and logistics may be different uh, across different agencies in DHS, but there has to be a sharing of that data and streaming of that information and making sure that it's viable across those different elements. So we certainly support that. It's part of our platform play, and we're encouraging other industry partners to make sure that they can be part of the community of developing proper models and then being able to scale those things out and make them more dynamic is part of that overall ecosystem. So we absolutely agree, and, and Red Hat and, and other industry partners are investing that to make sure that we can guarantee that, that those mission outcomes. Yeah, I'm going to keep, 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 keep on for a bit. I mean, um, you mentioned that it's important for uh, industry to understand the use cases, right? How would they find that out? How do you work with industry to help them understand what these use cases are and what the nuances of them are as well? Uh, there's a couple of ways. And, and, you know, there's scenarios out in the news, obviously, that's a simple part. But forums like this, I think these are great because, you know, we're having kind of formal conversation now. But afterwards, you know, a lot of times we'll exchange information and then, then we actually have some kind of one-on-one sessions or group sessions where we really get to talk and we really get to talk about brass tacks. So I think there are different ways to engage. One is the, the more formal because then we get into hundreds and thousands of folks to see us talk and they're saying, well, okay, so here is here are the things we can do. And, oh, I guess Red Hat does want to uh, support other uh, companies doing collaboration. And so now you've made that statement. Now we can start to find other forms that have a more focused conversation about that. The other thing is just knock on our door. I'm always open to talking to folks. A lot of folks, you know, kind of ping me on LinkedIn and I'll respond there. Uh, I'll get emails. I think it's important for the federal community to be able to be open and talk about what we do so that you know those things that maybe we don't publish in the paper, you know, because we're talking about mission and operations, but there's a whole other facet to this that I think you hinted on a little bit, uh, uh, Brian, our technical environments. I would love for ML to be all over the place. So I never have anything break down and I have, you know, more than five nines uptime because I have self-healing. How do we do that? And, and, you know, it sounds really easy, but we have very complex environments with multiple, multiple pieces of technology that sometimes just don't play together anyway. So to be able to explain that, why we're doing something, the intent, you know, because a lot of things are intent. If I tell you my intent, you'll say, well, why don't you try this? Because I know why you did that, but because of what I understand you're trying to do, here's how I get you there. So, you know, those conversations happen at different levels. So Dan, from your perspective, I mean, how how do you see um, ML propagating across the department? And what are some of the challenges from headquarters perspective do you see from propagating, whether it's the data or the models or or the testing? Lots a lot, Reggie. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Subscribe today so you never miss an episode of HSDF, the podcast. And visit hsdf.org for more information about the Homeland Security and Defense Forum.